0: This is JCU Conversations, a podcast show from James Cook University, Singapore. Tune in as we ask experts in the industry more about their lives and their approach to success. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's listen to today's episode. Hi, I'm Professor Abhishek Bharti, Campus Dean and Head of Learning, Teaching, and Student Engagement at James Cook University, Singapore. Our guest today is Professor Andrew Rose, Professor Andrew Rose is the Dean at the National University Singapore Business School. He's a distinguished professor and is internationally recognized for his contributions to international finance, macroeconomics, and trade. Welcome, Andrew, and thank you for doing this.
1: A pleasure, thanks for having me.
0: Um, could you please talk to us about your journey from a professor to being the Dean at uh, NUS Business School, Andrew?
1: Sure, be happy to. So. I became an academic administrator after much protest at Berkeley, Mm because I I really didn't want to become an administrator um, about um, a dozen years ago. And I think it's part of a life cycle for me. Um, You start off being uh, a serious academic Mm -hmm. um, when you're young, Mm -hmm. and you're Your commitment when you're young as a scholar is almost completely to your research. Teaching is sort of an incidental and you look down on academic administrators. Um, I certainly did. Um, But over time, um, you learn more how the profession works and um, your capacity increases. Mm -hmm. And you realize it's important to provide the infrastructure for others to produce good research and your ability to produce research wanes, of course, as you age. So I think of it as being sort of the academic life cycle Mm. um, and you have to provide some sort of public goods. So initially the way you provide public goods as an administrator is you edit a journal or you can organize conferences or you can work on committees, but eventually you move towards the administration and that's what happened to me. So, Um, In 2010, I was asked to be the Associate Dean at the Haas School of Business at Berkeley, and um, it was my time. I'd refused that uh, a couple of times before, but I felt it was an appropriate time to do my bit for the school and the university. Mm -hmm. And I pretty quickly found out that I wasn't so bad at it, and I was organized and efficient. Um, The usual term of uh, an associate dean at Berkeley, which is uh, the the second most important position at the school after the dean, the usual term is two years. I ended up doing it for six. And then for a lot of reasons, it was time to step down. Um, But um, it was, I won't say enjoyable Mm -hmm. all the time dealing with faculty you would not characterize as pleasurable in any sense, but it can be professionally satisfying, and that's really what got me started on my journey towards being an academic administrator here. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I, fantastic! I think that that's been a you know quite a quite a significant journey that you had from from the Haas Business School in in Berkeley. So, while you were at Berkeley, you mentioned you did that associate enroll for about six years. Um, what were some lessons there that? that prepared you for your current responsibility, Andrew? Um, I think the most important one
1: is be prepared and use the rules. Um, I believe very strongly in trying to do things in, um, in, in two different dimensions. Mm-hmm. First of all, you want to do things according to the rules. Yeah. and Secondly, you want to try to do the right thing. And it's not always easy to do the right thing, um, but you take advantage of the fact that there are many, many rules. Mm. And if you can use the rules to your advantage, um, that facilitates the right course of action, mm. Mm. Um, which is often not, very, not particularly straightforward. So I developed a set of principles. Um, for instance, um, the first thing I always try to do is stick to policy. If there's no policy, there's sometimes an informal practice. If there's neither policy nor practice, there's often a precedent. And if there are none of those, then you should just do what you think is just Mm. and defensible um, and reasonable. And in case there's any doubt, I think it's it's easiest to think of reasonable as being a very well-defined term In the Singapore context, here's the way I think of um, uh, doing something that's reasonable. If a member of parliament were across the street from me, um, let me start that again. If a member of parliament were across the table from me, or a member of the public or a member of the press and asked me, why did I do X? And I could say, I did X because of the following reasons. And they said, okay, not interesting, reasonable mm. that's the definition of reasonable mm.
0: Mm. fantastic and I think operating from a rule book is definitely the right step because then you could be you know transparent at the same time be consistent um, in your academic profession over the years, I'm sure you'd have visited several universities, several campuses you know in Asia in North America, Europe, and elsewhere. Is there any particular institution or an academic environment that really you know, struck to you, at uh, that becomes a memorable experience for you. Um, I don't think anyone in particular. Um, there
1: are many excellent institutions that I've visited over the years. Um, I like the academic freedom and and um, the concentration of taste, at least in in my profession. Yeah. Um, at the Stockholm Institute of International Economic Studies. Mm -hmm. I like the intellectual discourse that I experienced at Tel Aviv, almost as much as that at Princeton. Mm -hmm. These are areas that do international economics very seriously. But most academic institutions in the world are are pretty free and wide ranging and open to discourse and disagreement. And um, I think NUS and more generally, the, the academic environment in Singapore is quite good for the most part. Um, and intellectuals are free to disagree on the basis of merits, on, on the strengths of um, data and empirics and theory and reasoning. And that's, the, that's what academics should be doing, disagreeing with each other and arguing with each other so as to find a way to um, uh, better knowledge, more knowledge.
0: Mm, Interesting. In fact, your your final comment about academics segues well into what I wanted to also uh, get your opinion on, and that is, what would be your advice for for an academic, someone who's starting their career now and has 20, 30 years ahead of them, Mm. what would you advise them? So... Here's, here, here's the way that um,
1: I give advice. First of all, I, I don't give advice to most academics, mm. certainly unless they, they ask for it explicitly. But I usually say, here's what I would do if I yeah. were in your shoes, because I think giving advice is a dangerous thing. Mm. My principle is... A serious research university cares really about only one thing fundamentally, which is the production and dissemination of research. research, Now, producing research is a really important thing, Um, disseminating it, we disseminate research through scholarly publications, Mm -hmm. through conferences, seminars, but we also, of course, disseminate it through our students. That's why we take teaching seriously, especially at at a business school. No academic worth his or her salt should ever lose track of the fact that the purpose of the university is to produce and disseminate research. Mm -hmm. And universities value people based upon their ability to produce and disseminate research. So to any young academic, I say, you're gonna be judged to a first approximation solely on that basis. Mm -hmm. You know, personality disagreements, issues associated with how you're teaching, everything else is secondary to that objective. Mm. So you can never lose sight of the fact that you should be producing and disseminating your research. So don't keep your research secret, post it on your website, send things out for publication, speak at conferences, speak at seminars, teach well, teach your research and the research of others well that's the way you um, are going to make a name for yourself and, and you're doing what the university wants you to do. Mm-hmm. So never lose sight of the fact that you produce and disseminate research, that is your objective. But that's not true only for junior faculty, that's true for senior faculty too. Mm-hmm. So I'm a dean, I've been a dean at, at NUS for four and a half years. Mm-hmm. I, I try very hard not to lose sight of the fact that my role as an academic administrator is simply to facilitate the production and
0: dissemination of research. Hmm. Interesting, very profound about production and dissemination. And what I really like when you mention uh, that dissemination includes learning and teaching as well, where students play an important role in terms of you know being the, the conduit for expanding research within within the community as well. That mm-hmm. People are doing absolutely. Mm. Um, there's no doubt. That's that's the reason why the
1: scholar both does research yeah. and teaches at the same time. It's it, it's it's vital to do that. It's not the only way that research gets into the the public domain, mm-hmm. but it's a vital one. But let me just expand on 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 one point. Sure. On in in, in that domain. The best universities in the world, which you might think of as being Cambridge or Stanford or Harvard or Oxford or whatever they are, they're not full of people, of scholars, who are actually better at teaching students Mm. one for one, or certainly they're not that much better. They're full of people who do better research, and the better research attracts better students and more money. And that's the reason why Stanford and Cambridge and Oxford and Harvard and Chicago and all the rest are the preeminent universities that, mm. that they are. Mm. It's not on how they teach, it's the people and what they teach, their state-of-the-art research. That's the critical thing.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and that also becomes the foundation for, you know, research-informed teaching, as you, as you pointed out earlier on. Um, Now, shifting gears a bit, um, can you share a memorable experience, a life experience that you had, you know, um, that you encountered as probably from a perspective of economics or or as as a professor? Okay. Um, Not
1: very difficult. Um, (laughs) So here's an experience. I was working at Berkeley with a co-author. Okay. And we had, um, contiguous offices and, and we used to work with our doors open. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm working in my office, um, late on a Monday afternoon in October 1989, as it turns out. Okay. And, um, all of a sudden there was a tremendous rumbling and the building started to shake and it Mm -hmm. shook very, very dramatically. Now at that point, the advice was during an earthquake what you have to do is move to your door frame because yeah. door frames are reinforced as yeah. they are everywhere in the world mm. and it's the safest place to sit out a door um, an, an earthquake. Mm. So I moved to my doorframe and I saw that my co-author was not in her door frame. So I moved to her door frame which was only a few feet away yeah the, the earthquake was going on for a long time wow. and um, she was sitting at her desk just petrified. And I said, you better come out here right now, quite sharply. (laughs) And she came out to the doorframe and we lasted out the doorframe, the earthquake together in the doorframe. And I remember looking at her and thinking, wow, this is the last person I'm going to see before I die. Okay. But the the earthquake ended. That was the Loma Prieta earthquake, which is a very large earthquake, Mm. caused considerable destruction, 1989. And here's the coda. Um, my co-author was a woman um, who'd hired me and, and who was a, 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 a great mentor to me and remains a great mentor to me, um, Janet Yellen, who has been chair of the American Federal Reserve Board, and she is currently the US Secretary of the Treasury. And she was calm throughout the whole thing, as was I to, to some extent, but. We went through the Loma Prieta earthquake together.
0: There's an anecdote. Wow, that is that is a life experience, certainly. And <laughs> and she spent one of those probably the most uncertain moments with under the under the door frame together yeah. with you. Amazing. Now now we have discussed your professional journey, you know, but we're also curious about your leadership style. And and you have had several opportunities in in of course Berkeley as well as here in in, in Singapore at NUS. So could you please share what do you think are the key tenets of of leadership and whether academia or or in general, please?
1: Well, I'm not going to speak about leadership in general, but I'll I'll discuss how I try to lead. Mm -hmm. I try to lead cognizant of the fact that I'm an academic and I'm leading academics. Um, Most scholars choose to be scholars um, because they want flexibility and freedom. They do not want to be led. That's Part of the reason why they make a pecuniary sacrifice. They take a lower salary um, in order to retain more freedom. And I respect that. And certainly I was one of them myself. So I try not to tell people what to do. I try to figure out what's best and persuade people um, on the basis of data, theory, reasoning, and, and, and evidence. And I remain cognizant of the fact that my colleagues, um, they also have their own thoughts mm. um, and, and and so forth, and they don't want to be led. Yeah. So I think scholarly independence is critical if you're going to be a successful leader of um, an institution of higher education at any level whatsoever. So I try to lead as a dean knowing that most of my colleagues don't want to be led and don't need to be led So delegation down to the lowest possible level is is one of the things that 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 I really think is is valuable. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep, delegation, autonomy. You know, probably that's that. These are some important uh, values of of a leader. Thank you again for sharing those. So yeah, balancing a successful career and personal life can be challenging. How do you manage and maintain a work life balance?
1: Well. When I was younger, in my 20s, I focused almost exclusively on my professional life. Mm -hmm. And over time, of course, that shifted. Um, And at this point, my personal life is certainly as important, but probably more important than my professional life. But one of the great things about being an academic is you have far more flexibility than most people do in making those trade-offs between your professional life and Mm -hmm. your personal life. Um, most academics don't have to show up at the office every day. In fact, they have to show up at the office surprisingly infrequently. Mm-hmm. So, um, one of the great things about being an academic is raising a family. And I certainly took full advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to spend lots of time with my son when he was young. Just to be a little bit more precise, um, after my son was born, um, My wife went back to work full-time after only six weeks, but I went down to half-time work. So um, my son was in daycare half-time, and I took care of him the other half of the time. We had a fantastic time together, and it's one of the things that I will always cherish and I really recommend to parents of young kids. Um, if you're an academic, take full advantage of the flexibility that that
0: career offers to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And that's how you you get close to the family as well. And then what about some professional staff? You know, of course, academics may, the role itself might provide some flexibility. Mm-hmm. Any advice for professional staff to manage work-life balance?
1: Oh, I think exactly the same yeah. thing is true. Mm-hmm. So sometimes... Um, Many of our staff members who are facing students simply have to show up to the office. Um, But there are many, many times, especially in Singapore, where you don't have to show up to the office, um, certainly not for traditional office hours. And so well before the pandemic at the business school at NUS, we always encourage staff to take advantage of flexibility, both in terms of where they work and when they work. So Mm -hmm. long as the work gets done, we don't really care exactly how they do it and i think taking advantage of that is one of the great perks that a university can offer
0: to its staff Mm, fantastic fantastic um on on the same topic or similar similar question would be about the r word retirement you you've had an illustrious career in, in in of course north america and here in singapore at nus Any thoughts of retirement or that word doesn't exist in your dictionary?
1: No, quite the (laughs) contrary. So actually, um, Janet Yellen and I had a discussion of retirement um, when I was in my 20s. And Uh we both decided that at age 60, we would be retired from the University of California because there was a big kink in the um, retirement payout. And your, your, your benefit is maximized if you retire at age 60 mm-hmm. and take another job elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And my view was initially somewhat skeptical because I thought, well, if I retire from, from Berkeley and take another job elsewhere, aren't I depriving somebody of a job? And um, her response was, if you are, are at age 60 and you can't find another job, you certainly want to retire. They're ex- you're exactly the sort of person they want out. So I'd always planned to retire from Berkeley at age 60, which I did. Um, and I'm in, in Singapore um, primarily because I enjoy the work. I find uh-huh. it professionally satisfying. And when I don't, I sure hope I leave before I'm pushed out. Yeah. Um, but. R- retirement is is not an issue because i enjoy my work and yeah. i'll work as long as my wife and my institution allow me to yeah
0: fantastic you know very 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 profound thoughts that you've got um beyond your academic career are there any personal interests that you would like to share with the listeners um
1: My wife and I very much enjoy art. Um, Our current fascination is with the golden age of Dutch paintings in the 17th century, and we know a certain amount about that, so we like to go to the Netherlands, Uh but we really enjoy architecture. Mm -hmm. Um, My wife and I really enjoy hiking together, so we go on multi-day hikes, Mm. and Singapore is not so good for that because it's small and very humid, but Australia is great and yeah. Japan is great and Southeast Asia in general offers a tremendous diversity of cultures and food and archeology span and geography that we really enjoy. So uh, we take full advantage of the, the, the um, pleasures that Singapore has within a, a, a two or three hour plane ride
0: from, from us. Mm, Fantastic. And I'm glad that uh, Singapore and the Southeast Asia region has been, you know, home away from home for you for the last four and a half, five years, and you have enjoyed that experience as well. Mm. Andrew, now we are coming to the end of the the interview. Um, Do you have any advice for the students? You know, of course, we as academics are responsible for training the future generation, but as a student uh, and then the leader of the future, what should be Well, what should be their uh, their role as such in the society, in the community? So
1: that's a profound question and I don't have a good answer for it, but I'll say what I typically tell um, Singaporean Mm -hmm. undergraduates. University at its best is not simply a continuation of high school. So you shouldn't fixate just on grades. That's just a poor use of your time. A university is the time to figure out your preferences, what you enjoy. So maybe you should try water polo or learn more about German opera or Chinese calligraphy, expand your horizons, figure out your preferences. Don't just fixate on studying and Mm -hmm. getting good grades because you don't know what you wanna be as an adult. And a university is a fantastic to expand your horizons and take advantage of the many, many activities that you might enjoy and you've never experienced. And that, I think, is is absolutely key to having a well-rounded education.
0: Fantastic. Yes. You know, going beyond just to focus on grades. Mm. Absolutely. Um, Final question. If you were to go back in time, what would you tell a younger Andrew about what to do and what not to do? What could you change if there would be one thing that you would, let's say when you were 21 years old? Okay, so how about this?
1: Um, I'm gonna switch it to when I was 19 and halfway through my undergraduate um, experience. My biggest regret about my education is that I didn't take art history because I thought, who cares about art history? But actually, I've learned a lot about art history, and it's profoundly changed my view in mm-hmm. many different ways. And to actually be able to appreciate a work of art is a life-changing experience.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for spending time with us and sharing your, your thoughts and, and even some advice, as you said, to students and to fellow academics. Thank you again. A pleasure. Thank you.